But we're going to start Mark chapter 4. And uh, we're not really going to be concerned with time at this point. So if you go to Mark chapter 4, that's where we're going to start. But I want to I want to review a few things before we do anything in Mark. We gotta we gotta lay a foundation. We have to establish some things about Jesus in order to understand when we get into Mark four that Jesus is speaking, and he's speaking about kingdom things. Okay, I'm gonna give you a ton of verses. I don't expect you to flip your books and just write them down. You can go back to them and reference them. But I like giving a lot of scripture because it's easier for you to go back and look up whether I'm reading you something truthfully or not. Right. So in Isaiah 4311. It says, I, I am the Lord and besides me, there is no savior. Now, what I want everybody to realize is that this is. This is a word in Isaiah. And he says, I, which makes it personal, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. Okay? Now, that might seem basic, but there's a lot to that statement. Okay? John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, why is that important? Because it says that we should know God, the only true God, and Jesus, whom you have sent. But according to Isaiah 43:11, it says, I, I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no Savior. So who is I, according to Isaiah 43? That would be Jesus. Right. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life only comes through believing that Jesus did what he did on our behalf to save us. John chapter 10, verse 30 says, I and the father are one. Jesus says that me and the father are one. And it sounds familiar because later on, somebody was like, well, just show us the father. And Jesus said, well, if you've been with me, you've seen the father. So I am the father. I am the savior because besides me, there is no savior. Colossians 2, 9, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Matthew 1, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So Jesus was born of a virgin. They named him Emmanuel. And his name literally meant God is with us. First John 520, we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. 
and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So Jesus is eternal life and he is the true God. He's the only God. And he's the savior of the world, because besides I am, there is no other savior. Isaiah 9, 6 says for us, for to us, a child is born. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. So in Isaiah, Isaiah is speaking of God in reference to Jesus being God. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Remember the last time when we were together, I said that when Jesus went to John the Baptist, Jesus was present in bodily form, and a voice came from heaven, and then the spirit descended like a dove, and in that one location, all three beings were there. That's the only place where all three are there except Genesis 126. Let us make man in our likeness and in our image. Some people will tell you that that hour was demons and all this. And, and honestly, we, we can't base it on that because when you go back and you look at it and you actually study the plural. I mean, it, it doesn't line up to what the what it literally says. So in Titus 2.13, it says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in Titus, it calls Jesus God and Savior, which matches up to what was said in Isaiah, that I am the almighty God and the Savior. Right. So Revelation chapter one, verse eight says, I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord, who is, who was and who is to come, the almighty so i want to look before we dive all the way in and we start going i want to look at philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 because this is a good spot where you pretty much get the whole idea of who jesus was who he is what he came for you get it all in six verses if you want to share the gospel with somebody, memorize 5 through 11. So when you ain't got your Bible, you can hit them with this. All right. So Philippians 2. Starting at verse 5, it says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with the God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are on heaven or of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, 
now that that's established, I want to talk about the kingdom. There's some things in the word. A lot of the things that Jesus taught was about the kingdom. Almost everything he taught was about the kingdom. So in Mark chapter one, we were there last week, verse 15, it says, in saying this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So this is pretty much Jesus inauguration. He, he inaugurates the kingdom. He's saying the time is at hand, which means right now the kingdom is with you. Jesus is the kingdom. All right. Because where the king is, that's where the kingdom is. Right. So Luke 17 says, nor will they look, nor will they say, look, here it is or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus said, I'm right here in the middle of you. The kingdom of God is here right now. Don't look over there. Don't look over here. It's right here. This is the kingdom. So in reality, when you have the Holy Spirit in you, you have the kingdom of God in you. It's not something that you got to reach up here to get because it's here. In reality, you have to look inside of yourself in order to release the kingdom because out of the belly will come rivers of living water. Out of the inside of you is where the kingdom is, because if he is in you, then where the king is, the kingdom is. So you don't walk around in poverty because you are a king. You're a holy priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're sanctified. You're set apart. You're consecrated to do the works that Jesus did and greater works. Everything that he's got is yours and it's inside of you. You have access to it. The problem is a lot of times we don't remember the pin code to the debit card that he gave us. So we don't know how to get the rewards and get all the things that we already have in him. Jesus's whole purpose was the kingdom, Luke 4:43. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also for this. I was sent. And that is the purpose. He declared the kingdom in Luke eight. Verse one, soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. Jesus also demonstrated the kingdom in Luke 11, verse 20. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come out upon you. It didn't say his hand. <laughs> That's what kills me. Is if I cast out demons by the finger. You know, we we like to think it takes everything Jesus got to, to, to cast out demons. It takes one finger. It takes me five to brush my teeth. Right. Jesus deploys the kingdom. He sends his followers out as ambassadors of the kingdom to herald its arrival. This deployment happens in Luke chapter 10 as Jesus sends out the 72, instructing them to say the kingdom of God has come near to you. In Luke 10, verse 9, in the Great Commission, King Jesus issues the discipleship battle plan to the church because he possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. That's in Matthew 28, 18. But then Jesus transforms the kingdom because the Jews were expecting the kingdom, but they were expecting the kingdom in view of something different than what it actually was. They were expecting the kingdom or the Davidic kingdom to come and be established, which meant that they would physically rule 
over all the kings and all the governments and everybody that was on the earth. And that was their expectation because in reality, that just showed their selfishness when everything that they thought was really going to go on, it was opposite of that. You still rule and you still reign in the kingdom because the kingdom is in you. It's just different than what your perspective is. It's not going to be a physical kingdom per se, but you are the kingdom. And so Jesus actually, John 18, 36 says, my kingdom is not of this world. So he's telling the Jews, the kingdom that I've been telling you about, that's not of this world. It's not what you really think it is. It's not what you expect to see. It's something different. And so Jesus actually purchases the kingdom in Colossians 2, 14 through 15. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So he bought the kingdom back, which tells me that we originally had the kingdom. When we walked with God, we had the kingdom. We were with the king. And we lost that. So Jesus came and he overthrew all the powers and all the principalities. And when you read it in depth, it says that he stripped them butt naked of everything that they had. And he made a public display of them. And everybody laughed at him and mocked at him in his victory. And then he took the keys back. So he also concludes the kingdom in Acts chapter one, verse six. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is when they were asking him about the physical kingdom. But then he turns around in Revelations 19, 16, and he returns the kingdom. In the second coming of Jesus, when Jesus returns as a triumphant warrior king, as he returns to achieve final victory, the name scribed on his body is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Uh, one six. So the King of the Jews is what was inscribed in a bunch of different languages on the cross when they hung him. It was in Aramaic. It was in Greek. It was in Latin. But ever since his birth, he was a marked man. The day that he was born and the star appeared, he was literally born to die. But you don't hear a lot about his, his youth until he's about 12 and then he gets lost and he's like bucking against his parents. He's learning and all these things are happening. But even from birth, he was a marked man. And so from the beginning, there was a plan for us, and it was Jesus. The kingdom of God is also known as the kingdom of the Lord, the kingdom of heaven. All of these terms were terms that were used in order to, to keep from getting killed by the Jews, pretty much. Because you couldn't say Yahweh. You couldn't use the name of the Lord. A lot of people 
you know, you've Jehovah Jireh and, and all these, those are really good names and they have their purpose, their place and their meaning. But his real name is yad heh vad which is Yahweh in our, in our language. And so when they put King of the Jews up there, King of the Jews was his real name, which was Yahweh. And the King of God or the kingdom of God in the Old Testament in Jewish thought, that's why I said when you get in the Old Testament, there's a lot of stuff to break down. Ask Laban because he's been there forever. But <laughs> there's an everlasting duration to the kingdom. It's not temporary. In the Old Testament, save it to the end. In the Old Testament, the kingdom was since since before we existed, the kingdom was right. Because it says he's from everlasting to everlasting. In reality, he's always been. The kingdom has always been because the king has always been there. And so the, the kingdom is an everlasting duration. It's present and it's tangible in the lives of the ancient Israelites. You can look at the Israelites. It's present with them. The Ark of the Covenant, the Pillar of Fire, all, all these things are actually kingdom things that happened in the Old Testament. The kingdom was, it came, but it didn't stay, right? That was a temporary thing. They made tabernacles and dwelling places and, and you know, Jacob was wrestling and he said, this God must be here. And he made a little thing. And, but after that, where, did, where, where was the kingdom? It wasn't in that little rock altar that he made. An altar is just a memory. That's that's for you when you walk by. You remember what God did for you. Amen. Right. That's why they built altars. They were memorials. Unless it was a sacrificial thing. And even then it was still a memorial of what was what you did, what has cleansed you. And anytime you saw that, you just remember, like, I'm, I, you know, I got to sacrifice goats and pigeons and whatever. But the eternal nature of God's kingdom is something something big. And it's hard for us to really grasp what the kingdom is because we like to walk through life with our five senses. And even though your five senses help you perceive certain things, you cannot understand the fullness of the kingdom that's inside of you because it's not like anything you see. It's not like grace church, the building. It's not like the house of prayer, the building. It's not like, you know, whatever else kingdom that you want to compare it to, because in reality it's in you. And if it's in you, what's in you really matters then. And you knowing what you have really matters. Because when he ascended, he went to the right hand of the father. I'm seated in heavenly places with him. I'm seated in Christ Jesus. If I'm the right hand man to God, that means I got everything that he's got. I have deliverance. I have salvation. I have grace. I have faith. I have gifts. I have all these things. And it's my job to appropriate and applicate these things, not for myself, but to benefit other people. Because a kingdom is a culture. It's not an individual deal. And the problem, we think of a kingdom like we think of the Queen of London and, and all that. It's not the same. It's not the same. Because our idea of of what that looks like is government. Government is different than a monarchy. In a monarchy, it's only one person that's really in control. 
where the government, yeah, we got the president and all this, but there's a lot of people that influence him and his decisions. And whether it's liberals or Democrats or whatever, there's influence there. Well, in a kingdom, the king makes the decisions. Now, the right hand of the father or the right hand of the king means that you're my right hand man. You have the same authority that I have. You can make the same calls. You're going to stand in my place and make the call so I don't have to leave my throne. And so Jesus is at the right hand of the father and we're in him. So in reality, we have all the things that the king has. (coughs) The notion of a future reign of God <clears throat> is, for me, it's it's kind of ridiculous, honestly. You know, <clears throat> we all pray for revival. How many of us have prayed for revival like this? To me, that's ridiculous because I am revival. I, I am revival. And that might sound arrogant and righteous and all this stuff, but in reality, why am I going to pray for something that I possess? Anywhere that I go is holy ground. If the Lord is in me, everywhere I step is holy ground. Everywhere you step is holy ground. Darkness cannot be. Where there is light, darkness has to go. And when you walk in that authority and and, and know that the kingdom of God is in you and that the king is with you and for you, there's nowhere that you can't go. You can go wherever you want to. In the beginning, he gave us what? A job? He said, This is all yours. I want you to take the whole planet, have dominion over it, and subdue it. Everything and everywhere I put my foot, I subdue. I own it. Because he's the creator. He created everything. He created all things. And in all things, we have our being through him. So if I got him and he owns me, he owns the earth. Everywhere I go, he owns it. Whether I'm in the kitchen or in the day room or at my house or at your house. That's why when he told him, he said, if you go into a house, let your peace fall on the house. If they don't accept your peace, take your peace back. Go outside, wipe the dust off your feet and keep going because it'd be worse for Sodom and for these people than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. Because they don't accept the peace that I gave you. I can't give away something that I don't have. I can't give you peace if I don't have peace. I can't give you light if I don't have light. But if I possess something, I can give it to you. It's mine. It's free. I have it. It's in my possession. I can freely give it to you because it was freely given to me. Right. And that's what we have to walk in. The kingdom is so different than what the Jews thought or or most of the time what I even think, because it's so expansive. Our minds cannot comprehend who God really is. If you try to explain God, words break down and you run out of stuff to say about him. You can't even do it. That's how big and how great he is. And it's the same when you try to explain the kingdom. Eventually you run out of stuff to say. It's one of those, you got to accept it and use it and move in it. All right, now we can get into Mark. So we're going to go to Mark chapter four. I'm going to run through it. We're going to read it first, and then we'll go back. We'll talk about a few things. So he began to teach by the sea, or he began to teach again by the sea. 
And such a very large crowd gathered to him, and he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, listen to this, behold, the sower went out to sow, and he was sowing. Some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came, and they ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seed fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. As soon as he was alone, his followers along with the twelve began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you, this has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables so that while seeing they may not or they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. So he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all of the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown by the rocky places. Who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. But they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitful of the riches and the desires of the things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the good soil and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60 and 100 fold. And he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except what to be revealed. Nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to the light. If anyone has a, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and to whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night, and he gets up day by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain, then the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts the sickle to it. Because the harvest has come. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we present it? It's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, 
but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up, and Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not even care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and the sea and said, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So now you can kind of see why we talked about the kingdom first. Because chapter four is all about the kingdom. It's about the individuals in the kingdom. It's about the individuals who ain't in the kingdom. And there's a lot in here that we could just we could just chop up real good. Most of us have read this. This if you haven't read it, you know what good soil is. I mean, Gavin's a you know, he's been on a farm his whole life. He knows that in order to have good soil, you gotta put a lot of work in. You gotta burn fields at the end of the year. You gotta turn it. You gotta put fertilizer. You gotta do all this stuff to have good soil. You gotta rotate this crop this year from the next crop next year. There's a lot of work that goes into having good soil. But I think it's interesting in verse 11 that he said to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't hold back anything from those who were his. He held nothing back. There was a lot of people there. He was healing people in chapter three. He healed a blind man. Four people uh, lowered a, a paralytic down on a mat. All these things were happening and all these people were following him and he excluded all of them. But the ones that really had something to do with him that were really there to really receive from him, he gave them the mystery of the kingdom of God. He didn't hold anything back. But those who are outside get everything in parables so that while seeing, they may see and do not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. But the parable of the seeds is so rich and you can you can look at your own life and examine your own life and, and really see some things about who you are how much you've grown, if you've grown, whether your soil was good. I mean, there's a lot of things that are in here that, that talk to me about me. You know, in reality, I'm not worried about you. I'm, I'm concerned about me because I'm trying to grow something. I got to kind of be selfish from time to time. Jesus always went away by himself to pray. You know, he did community prayer, but at the same time, he had to find time by himself. So he was a little selfish with the Lord, too. Right wasn't that he wasn't concerned about everybody else, but you have to have that alone time as well. But he said the ones who are beside the road, when they hear it, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which had been sown by them. And I remember a, a time in my life, first time I ever sat in church, that's kind of how it was. I heard it. 
As soon as I walked out of the door, it really didn't matter because I was ready to go to Golden Corral or eat some sushi. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was just going there to be going there. But in a similar way, the ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, they heard the word and immediately received it with joy. And they had no firm root in themselves. And they were temporary. And when affliction and persecution became because of the word, immediately they fell away. Again, that's another time in my life. When I heard the word, I'm excited. You know, I'm on fire. And as soon as I go talk to some people that I know and they're like, starts calling you stuff that you ain't used to. You know, Jesus freak and Bible basher, Bible thought like immediately when those words came, I fell away from it because I was worried about me. I don't want people calling me that. Right. And so I, 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 I digressed instead of progress. But then the other ones are the ones among thorns and thistles. They heard the word. But then the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things enter in and choke the word and you become unfruitful. I've been there too. I love the word, but I really like these cars. I really like these girls. I really like going to the club. I really like these Jordans and it's all about me. And all those things came in and choked the word that was in me. And I was unfruitful at that point in my life. But then you got the ones whom the seed was sown on good soil. And they hear the word and they accept it. And they bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. There's another, there's another portion of scripture that's in Corinthians where there was a little, little argument between the Corinthians about well, I follow Apollos and I follow Paul and I follow Jesus. And Paul is like, look, I didn't die for you. <laughs> Apollos didn't die for you. And what he said was phenomenal because he said, I just planted the seed. But Apollos came and watered the seed. But in reality, God's the one that brought forth the fruit. Because here's the thing, I can plant a seed in not so good soil, Apollos can come and overwater it and kill it. Or I can plant a seed in some some good soil and somebody come and overwater it and kill it. The only one that's really going to produce the fruit is God himself. And that's pretty much what he says. In verse 26, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed on the soil. He goes to bed at night and he gets out by day and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He don't know. He don't know. The amazing thing about farming then was it's different than now. You know, we got combines and they they roll and, and pop a hole and put a plant in. Pop a hole, put a plant in. Or you got five people on the back of it and they're just, well, back then it wasn't like that. You take all the seeds. And you go out and you just throw them and you throw them and then the plow comes behind and turns the dirt over. Then the soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts the sickle to it because the harvest is gone. Verse 27. 
So we can't think of the terminology that Jesus uses in the same way that we think of things that we do today, because it was way different then. So I would go out and throw the seed. I love the way Bill Johnson put it. He actually did a message on it. He said, you go out and you throw the seeds. That's your job. You go out and throw the seeds. You go out and throw the seeds. But then God comes. The plow comes. And the plow is the one that actually turns it over into the good soil and makes it rain and produces the fruit. All we do, we just sow seeds. That's it. That's all we can do and hope that it hits good soil. And if you can't read this and look at yourself and see all three of those things, you know, we got we got to maybe pray about it. And examine ourselves because it's so easy to do, man. It's so easy to get wrapped up in everything that the world has to offer and forget that 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 word that's already in you. That's why the Bible says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Richly. You think of rich. You don't you don't just think of like two hundred dollars. You think mansions, extravagant stuff. You got to let the word of God dwell in you that way. It has to be an extravagant, overflowing abundance of word in your life. Not just $200. With many parables, he was speaking the word of them so far as they could hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable. And this is where it gets good in verse 35. On that day when evening came, he said to them, let us go to the other side, leaving the crowd. They took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with them. I want you to remember that the other boats were with them. And there arose a fierce gale of wind and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey? him?" Now, the first time I read this, I didn't think about the fact that when they got in the boat. Some other people was like, well, we're going to get in some boats. We're going to follow them. They were going to every extent they could just to, to try to keep up with wherever he was going. But they didn't realize that when he got in that boat. There was some stuff that was about to happen, right? Because I like to think that if I knew a gale was coming, I probably would have just walked. I wouldn't have got in no boat. You're setting yourself up for failure. But what they really didn't realize was the next chapter that we're going to we're not going to do that tonight. But the next chapter, the reason he got into that boat was because he had a plan and a purpose for going across to the other side. The demoniac. Legion. Right. We know that story. But Jesus didn't even tell her to say, I'd imagine he knew that the gale was coming. He had to, because like I told you before, you know, that was a deep valley. A gale is a hurricane. A hurricane showed up and, that, and Jesus is in the boat asleep. He knew it was going to happen. There's, I have no doubt in my mind that he knew this was going to be a teaching moment. He didn't tell them the reason they were going to the other side. 
There was other boats with them. In their ignorance, they go in an attempt to follow Jesus and his disciples, and they get hung up in a storm. We don't know if they died, if they perished, if the boat flipped over, if half of them had to swim to shore. We don't know a whole lot about what happened to the other people in the boat. But we do know what happened to the ones that were in the boat. Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, knocked out, cold. Jonah was in, he was asleep in the stern of the boat too, but he was running away from God. He was, he, he was just trying to hide. Jesus was just trying to relax. But here's what's, here's what gets me. They said, teacher, do you not care that we are dying? You're here sleeping. Do you not care that we're dying right now? With like the boat's filling up with water. We're about to drown and you're in here sleeping. He got up and just said, hush, be still. And everything stopped. All these emotions and anxiety and, and all the situations and circumstances around them forgot who they were actually in the presence of. All of the circumstances, everything that this natural life could throw at them at one point in time, a hurricane came and all they were worried about was I'm about to die. Well, they failed to realize that the man that was paralyzed on the mat in the chapter before, he got up after being paralyzed his whole life and walked out of the building. They peeled the roof off the house, dropped him down. He got healed and left. The woman with the blood issue, she dried up immediately. The blind man, he started to see. And you ain't got enough faith to think that I can't just take a nap in the middle of the storm? Because I can. Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Do you still not have faith after all the miracles that I've showed you over and over, all the court cases that I've thrown out? All of your families being reconciled. All of your people coming to you. Do you still have no faith that God can't handle the little things that you think I can't handle? I'll give you your whole life back. You just overdosed a week ago. You just pissed all your stuff away. Everything that you had was gone and you think I can't give it back to you? You think I can't give it back to you? I give you some big things and then you don't even recognize the little things no more because you're expecting me to part the Red Sea when really I just want to burn a bush for you. And you still ain't got no faith. After all this stuff, after all this time walking together, a little bit of circumstances come in and choke the word and you forget who I am and what I can do. I quieted a hurricane. And you talking about I don't care that you're dying? Where's your faith at? Where's your faith at? Then they become afraid. And they say, who is this? <laughs> who, is, who is this? Even the wind and the seas obey him. Oh, you thought all I could do was heal your physical body. You thought that was all I could do. 
You thought all I could do was break bread and feed 5,000. Then you mad because you arguing about bread. You just saw me feed 5,000 people. You've been walking with me this whole time, and all you worried about is bread. Here you are. You walking on water. You walking on water, and it said you saw the wind. You can't see the wind. You saw what the wind produced. It produced waves. The circumstances in your life produce waves. And when the waves come, you got two options. Either you keep walking on water or you drown. So when when the seed is sown, is it on good soil or is it going to get choked up? Because you have the option to be good soil. I like what it says in Romans, that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but it's of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not a matter of rituals and performance. It's not about you going to church every Sunday. It's not about you doing the right thing all the time, but it's a matter of righteousness, then peace and then joy in the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 420, the kingdom of God is not a matter of word, but of power. It's not a matter of you talking all the time. It's a matter of power. The Holy Spirit came with power. It didn't come with some nice words. I don't ever want to get to a place again in my life where I feel powerless. I don't want to feel defeated anymore. I'm tired of getting back up. I'd rather just stay up. If I can't stay up, I need two friends like Moses had to hold me up. Chapter three. He had four faith-filled friends that took him to Jesus. I don't need 500. I need four good friends that's willing to walk with me, that's willing to talk to me, that's willing to help me, that's willing to carry me to the Savior every time I need something to be done or remind me that I am blessed. I don't want another blessing. I am blessed. If he wants to give me one, perfect. But I'm blessed already. This is why I wanted to do Mark, because Mark is so basic. Like I said, it's healing after healing after miracle after miracle. And then you're left with an option. Either you believe it or you don't. They, a lot of times we make the gospel more complicated than it is. There's another parable that I like. It's real short. This is this is how how easy the gospel is, but we make it complicated. It says that the kingdom is like a woman that lost a coin. And she calls everybody. I lost my coin. I, I lost it. I got to find it. I don't know where it's at. So she turns all the lights on in the house. She gets the broom. She sweeps. She checks under the couch, checks behind the toilet, checks under the sink, pools. I mean, she checks everything. And then when she finds it, when she finds it, she calls all them people back and says, look, I found it. That's the gospel. It ain't always doctrines. And all that stuff is good. I'm not saying that it's not good. But you always got to go back to the basics. So what did, what did she find? What did she really find? She found true love. 
She didn't find a religious system of passing out pamphlets and, you know, I'm going to go to the homeless shelter and feed these. That's all good things to do after you find true love, because really you can't do it unless you are loved, because then you're just doing it. It's works. Works is way different than love. And, and, and I got to a place where I like the simple word. I know we get a little deep like tonight with the kingdom and all that, but in reality, it's still simple. All this is just just extracurricular stuff. Amen.